Our scripture reading for this morning from the Old Testament is Psalm 22, which we sang a setting of part of earlier. Psalm 22. As I said earlier, the psalm is uh, looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, you'll see there in the first verse of this psalm, these are the words he himself quotes as he's suffering on the cross in our place. This is the psalm that's on his mind on the cross. And the psalm moves from suffering and humiliation uh, to exaltation and glory. This is the very word of God. Let's give our full attention to it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him, since He delights in Him. But You are He who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon You from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of the earth. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before Him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be counted to the, recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Thanks be to God for his word there in Psalm 22. Our New Testament reading and our sermon text is John chapter 20, 
verses 1 through 18. John 20, verses 1 through 18. Once again, this is God's very word. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we, don't, we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. And the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabbani, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I, ascend, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Amen. That sends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. You alone, O oh Lord, uh, can take your word and apply it to our hearts, uh, plant it deep in our hearts that it might bear fruit. We pray you would do so by your spirit. Show us once again the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and unite us more and more closely to him. This we ask in our Savior's name. Amen. Each of the Gospels uh, gives a different take on the resurrection account, on the, on the events of Easter morning. They're, they're, they're recounting many of the same events, but each one has a, has a different focus, different tone to it. In Matthew, there's, a, there's an earthquake. There's a dramatic descent of angels. Over in Luke, we get a lot of focus on the disciples on the road to Emmaus as Jesus walks to them and speaks to them and, and shows them how the Old Testament is all pointing to him. Uh, but here, here in John, it, it's quite different. It, it's a very quiet account of the resurrection. It's a very personal account of the resurrection. 
Some angels do appear. Peter and John also appear. But they're not the center of the drama here. The focus is really on this one woman, this really unimportant, insignificant woman, Mary Magdalene, and her encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And this encounter which moves her from from the very depths of grief to heights of joy that she could never have imagined. That's, that's what John's doing here in the first 18 verses of chapter 20. He's tracing this movement in Mary Magdalene from grief and weeping to glory and rejoicing that Christ has been raised. And brothers and sisters, this text, this, this story, this reality that we're reading of this morning, the resurrection of Christ, it has the power to do that for us too. Because this isn't just another story of hope born out of hopelessness. Some people try to reduce the resurrection just to just to hope in the midst of of hopelessness. Just another inspiring story. But that's that's not at all what's going on here. We don't need just another inspiring story. We need history, the real thing that happened there, because our grief is real. We need a joy that is real and solid and not counterfeit. And so we need what really happened that Easter morning and and what happened that morning is that Christ rose from the dead. And as he rose from the dead, he changed everything. And this wonderful account, this glorious good news that Jesus rose from the dead has the, has the power to do the same thing for us that it did for Mary, moving her from the depths of grief to the heights of joy because we see Christ here. We meet the risen Lord Jesus here. He speaks to us here. We see his victory here. And so this is our goal this morning, that we see the risen Lord Jesus in all his glory as he rises from the dead, as he as he reveals himself to us here in his word, that we see him and that we rejoice in him, that we love him and that we cling to him. This text this morning traces this change in Mary, right, as we said, from grief to glory, from confusion to consolation. As she encounters Christ. So that's how we'll walk through it now together under these two headings, faith confused and faith consoled from confusion to consolation. So first, faith confused. In verses 1 to 13, we see the grief and confusion that Jesus' disciples, most of all Mary Magdalene, um, we see the grief that they're feeling. We see their faith here, but we also see how overwhelmed they are uh, by their grief. We start in verse 1 with Mary Magdalene. And the first thing we need to ask as we come to this is, who is Mary Magdalene? Because she's not a, she's not a main player in the story of the Gospels, really. She's, not, she, she's more of a side character. She's not the character you expect to show up at the climax right, of the action. She's, she's kind of a side, almost an extra in the story. But here at the climax of the Gospels, here she is, this side character suddenly given such a prominent role. We, we see, um, uh, we're, we're introduced to her back in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It says this, Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who'd been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of 
uh, Chaza Harold's household manager and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. That's all we really, that's, that's uh, Mary's origin story. That's, that's all we really know of her, that she was possessed by seven demons and the Lord comes and he has compassion on her and drives them out from her. That's really all we need to know about her. That, that this made such an impression on her. She was so liberated by the wonderful saving work of Christ that, that she clings to him, she follows him closely from there on out. So even though she's not one of the twelve, even though she doesn't appear much by name in the gospel accounts, yet she's one of Christ's closest followers. She's mentioned again in the gospels as being there at the crucifixion of Christ. There, watching from a distance, she cannot leave him. She cannot bear to be apart from the Lord Jesus, even if it means watching him die on the cross. She has to be there watching him. And so, in that same spirit, here she is. It's, it's Easter morning, first thing in the morning. Um, and, and, and because she feels like she has to be near her Lord, she's here at the tomb. She comes to the tomb in, in grief over Jesus' death. She finds the, the stone's been rolled away. His body's not there. And what should bring her hope actually brings her more grief and more confusion. She, she can't imagine yet. She's too blinded by grief to imagine what this absence of Christ's body means. She thinks someone has stolen or moved Jesus' body. So she feels like she has to tell someone about this. So she runs to Peter and John, and she tells them in verse 2, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So she runs, she gets Peter and John. Peter and John hear the news. What's going on? They run to the tomb. John gets there first. He sees the stone rolled away sees the grave clothes that, that would have wrapped Jesus' body uh, lying there where Jesus would have lain. But there's no body there. Peter then comes, and he goes right inside the tomb. He doesn't hesitate at all. He goes in, and he sees not only the linen cloths that wrapped Jesus' body lying where Jesus' body should have been. He sees the head covering that would have been on Jesus' face wrapped up, folded neatly, and set to one side. It's not what you'd expect of someone stealing the body that they would do that. The text tells us that John, uh, at least, believed, at least in part, Peter and John both here, are, 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 are filled, I think, with some kind of hope, but also confusion. What is going on? The, the text tells us they believe. It also tells us that they don't yet understand the Scriptures. Scriptures like Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Hosea 6, 2, these Scriptures that foretell the resurrection of Christ. So there's, there's part of them, I think, that is believing here. They're seeing some of the signs of Christ's resurrection, but, but they don't linger. They don't stay. I think they're filled with confusion. What, what, what is going on? The text tells us that they then return home. They've seen some of these signs, but they don't yet believe or understand the Scriptures, so they return home. And then the text, after that uh, look at Peter and John, turns our attention back to Mary Magdalene. Apparently, after she ran and told Peter and John uh, about the body being gone, she comes back to the tomb with them. They leave, but Mary can't bring herself to leave. Verse 11 tells us she lingers by the tomb, weeping. Do you see her deep need for Christ here? He is her Savior. She cannot leave where she thinks he must be. She knows that he has saved her. 
She, she knows what he's done for her. She feels totally, absolutely dependent on him. So much so that even in the face of his apparent death, she knows she has nowhere else she can go. So Jesus is everything to her. Even his death can't prove that he wasn't her savior to her. Her faith here is, is somewhat misguided. The lifeless body of Christ will not do her any good. But in the fog of confused grief, she's still irresistibly drawn to Christ. One theologian says this about Mary Magdalene here. Though unaware of the resurrection as a fact, she had laid hold upon the supreme principle from which its necessity flows. Once given the intimate bond of faith between a sinner and his Savior, there can be no death to such a relationship. Mary has known the risen Christ. She's known the salvation that's come to her from Christ. And so even though she can't yet see the resurrection, she knows somehow this is where she needs to be. Here, looking for Christ, longing for Christ. That's why she lingers here at the tomb. Even though she can't put it into words, it seems, her whole soul has been united with her Savior. Brothers and sisters, do you know Christ? like this, long for Him like this, need Him like this. But even as we see some evidence of Mary's faith here in Christ, we also see it clouded with her grief. It's so clouded with grief that she can't see what she should see so clearly. All these, all these evidences of the resurrection staring her in the face she bends to look inside the tomb in verses 11 to 12, and she sees two angels clothed in white inside the tomb. She doesn't wonder. There's two angels sitting here inside the tomb. They're sitting. One's at the foot of where Jesus had lain. One's at the head of where Jesus had lain. The theologian Gerhardus Voss points out here, this should remind us of, in the Old Testament, the two cherubim, the angels on either side of the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Here's the new mercy seat, flanked by two angels, the place where Jesus uh, lay when he was buried, the place from which he rose. But Mary doesn't see this. She doesn't stop and, and acknowledge what's going on. She doesn't, see what the, uh, she doesn't seem to recognize the angels. And, and so the angels ask her why she's weeping must have seemed incredible to the angels. It's resurrection morning. Heaven is even now ringing with the triumph of Christ's victory. And there's a woman weeping. Woman, why are you weeping? They ask. She says, because they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. Even in grief, even in her, in, in the clouded uh, nature of, of Mary's faith and her grief here, she has this deep, intense, personal faith in Christ. He's my Lord, she says. With him gone, nothing else matters. She, she doesn't want, she doesn't need, she cannot see the testimony of the angels. There's something commendable here, even in this fog of her grief, that, that, that she has this complete dependence upon Christ, and it's only Christ and no other which will pierce through her grief and give her hope. But although her faith, which is this deep sense of need for Christ, it's, it's been brought out here, uh, uh, her, her faith is, has, is, is what's making her linger here, her longing for Christ here that we see, her grief has blinded her to what she should see. 
The evidence of the resurrection is plain. The heralds of the resurrection are there proclaiming it, uh, but she doesn't see. And grief does that for us too, doesn't it? It clouds our spiritual vision, even as we see Mary's grief cloud hers. Loss and disappointment, pain, these things come into our lives and they cloud our spiritual vision. They confuse our faith. We might be surrounded by the signs of God's love, but we become confounded by grief and pain. What should we do when that happens? When grief does come in and, and, and is bringing confusion and, 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 and clouding our spiritual vision? Well, what does Mary do? She runs to Christ, cries after Christ, longs for Christ. Yes, she should see the evidence here. She should remember His promises, remember the Scriptures that spoke of this. But even as she fails to, she's still longing for Christ, seeking Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, the principle for us here is in our grief, run to Christ, long for Christ, seek Christ, even when our our faith feels clouded by that grief. Go to the Lord Jesus and look and long for Him. And and if you do, what you'll find is that He will come to you. He Himself will console you with His resurrection, even as He does with Mary here. You'll you'll find, even as Mary does here, His infinite tenderness and and love for her. And that's what we see in our second point here. Faith consoled in verses 14 through 18. Faith consoled. At this point, Mary turns. She's been uh, with the angels, look, looking at, at the tomb where the angels are. She's, she turns and she sees someone else has come. Verse 14 tells us it's Jesus, but Mary doesn't recognize him yet. So there's some suspense built into the narrative there. When is Mary going to see who this really is? And we don't, we're not told why she doesn't recognize Christ. Perhaps it's because uh, she's just so overcome with grief that she uh, uh, can't recognize him. Um, perhaps it's because he's been so disfigured by the suffering he's gone through. Perhaps it's because uh, Christ does not yet will for her to see him and recognize him. But before she can ask him anything, he addresses her. This meeting here doesn't happen by chance. Jesus is coming to her. He's, he's, he's taking the action here. He's revealing himself to her, coming to her. He's not waiting for her to figure it out or, or see through her grief or, or for, her, for her faith to see properly what has happened. He comes. He moves towards her. And we see the wonderful grace of God displayed in this. One of the theologians comments here, the first person to whom Jesus showed himself alive after the resurrection, was a weeping woman who had no greater claim upon him than any simple penitent sinner has. Among all the voices that hailed his triumph, no voice appealed to him like this voice of weeping in the garden. The first appearance of the risen Lord was given to Mary for no other reason than that that she needed him first and needed Him most. What wonderful grace, what what love Christ has for repentant sinners. Mary has no claim on Him, no right to His attention. Here is the risen Christ. And here He is giving His attention to her. She only has this need for Christ. And that's the claim on Him that Christ allows. That's the claim on Himself that Christ loves. This absolute need for Him. 
you heard his voice again, puts it like this. Provided there be the irrepressible demand for his presence, he cannot, he will not deny himself to us. Brothers and sisters, does that characterize your faith? Like Mary Magdalene here, even your clouded faith, an irrepressible demand for his presence. You and I have not been possessed as, as Mary was by seven demons and healed miraculously and dramatically by Christ. But hasn't Christ saved us from just as much? Just as much freed us from the power of, uh, of darkness? Just as much uh, 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 saved us from our sin and our guilt and, uh, and our, our condemnation? Let us long for his presence, demand his presence as Mary does. And so, Christ honors this desire. He comes and He shows Himself to her at last. He reveals Himself to her. He says in verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? That term, woman, is not a harsh term. It can can come across in our culture that way. But Jesus is just addressing her with tenderness here and kindness. Why are you weeping? Jesus has been waiting. He's been watching for the right time to make himself known to her. And as, she, as, he, as he sees her now, as she sees him, he knows that she doesn't yet recognize him. So he says, why are you weeping? He's trying to draw out from her her, her grief and hear her uh, speak for herself why she is weeping. She's trying, he's, tr- he's drawing her eyes to him. And even as Jesus speaks to her, she, she fails to recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. She says, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. It's interesting there. Mary doesn't think to tell this gardener who the him is. In her grief, in her devotion to Christ, everyone must know who he is and, and who she's looking for. If you've taken him away, tell me and I'll go get him. And then we come to verse 16. One of the most glorious moments in all the Gospels. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabbanai, which is to say, teacher. With a single word, just by speaking her name, Jesus opens her eyes to see who he is. And imagine Mary in that moment, in that instant, her whole world is transformed forever. It's like, the, it's like she was in the midst of pitch black darkness and suddenly the lights come on. The, the deepest grief has changed to the highest joy. What did, that, what did that feel like for Mary? She thought that Christ was dead, and here he is, looking at her, speaking her name to her, alive, fully alive. If you've ever lost someone close to you, you can understand something of the grief that Mary was feeling, the, the, the horrible ache and the loss and the longing for that person, and nothing but the, that person could satisfy that longing. Imagine if you're, you're in the grips of that sorrow. It's fresh. It's just been a day or two since your loved one passed away. And then suddenly you see them and they're speaking your name and they're fully alive. That's something of what Mary's experiencing here, but it's to an even greater degree. This isn't, this isn't just a, another loved one, a spouse, a parent, a child, as dear as they might be. This is the Lord Jesus, the one who saved her, the one who's loved her with an everlasting love. She thought he had died, and here he is, fully alive. What we see playing out here 
exactly what Jesus said back in John 10, where he said, My sheep hear my voice. I call them by name. They hear my voice. And they know me. Calvin says this here, That voice of the shepherd, therefore, enters into Mary's heart, opens her eyes, arouses all her senses, and affects her in such a manner that she immediately surrenders herself to Christ. Have you heard Christ speak to you the way he speaks to Mary here? Has his voice taken away the spiritual blindness, given you eyes to see him for who he is? Now, we don't hear his physical voice utter our literal names, do we? No, but, but, but the spiritual reality is the same. That Christ, by his spirit, effectually calls all his own to himself. His, his word comes. He calls his own by name and they come. Have you heard him? Has that happened to you as God's word is read and preached? As, 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 as his word is proclaimed, as you study his word, read it. Do you hear Christ? Has his voice, as Calvin puts it, entered into your heart, opened your eyes, aroused all your senses, and so affected you that you immediately surrender yourself to him. That's what we see Mary do here. She cries out, Rabbani, which means teacher. Not an impersonal title at all. It's the name by which Mary knew him best. By this title for Christ, she's submitting herself to him. She's saying, you're the teacher, I'm the student. You're the master, I'm the servant. In the simplest possible terms, Jesus is saying here, Mary, you are mine. And Mary is saying, yes, I am yours, and you are mine forever. And this is the heart of the covenant. This is the whole whole thrust of Scripture, that God would be God for his people, and they would be his people forever. God is his, and we are, uh, God is ours, and we are his forever. So Mary here, she's, she's overcome with joy. She's moved from grief to gladness. Christ is alive. He's here And then she does what is most natural. She runs to him to embrace him. And then Jesus does something which really sounds surprising. It almost sounds harsh. Listen to verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Don't cling to me, he says. Don't touch me. Don't lay hold on me. How can Jesus say this to Mary when she's just just seen finally who he is, the risen Christ for her? Does Jesus mean now that, that, that there's this aloofness now because he's been you know, risen from the dead that the disciples can no longer have the kind of intimacy they had with him before? That because he's risen from the dead, there's this distance between his disciples and himself that his new status as risen Christ requires a dignity that holds himself aloof from them. Not at all. Notice what Jesus says to her. He says, don't cling to me because I've not yet ascended to my Father. He's saying, don't cling to me yet. There's, a, there, there's something better coming, Mary. There's a deeper, sweeter, fuller relationship coming. And then you may cling to me in all my fullness. I'm, Jesus is going to ascend to heaven in 40 days. He's not going to be here physically. Whether he's saying, Mary, don't, don't place all your hope in my physical presence with you. 
Because there's something even better coming. We saw this, didn't we, back in our series in John 14, uh, just recently. Um, Jesus tells his disciples there that he's going to ascend, but when he does, it's going to be to his disciples' advantage. Because he's going to send his spirit, and, and when he does, they're going to have him in a sweeter, more intimate way than they ever could have had him when he was with them on earth. His resurrection has, has opened the way for a greater, closer relationship with them. Christ is not pushing Mary away then with these words. Calvin says here that for Mary to just want Christ's physical presence without his ascension was to only have half of his resurrection. He wants her to cling to the whole thing, the finished work, once he ascends to heaven. Her desire to hold fast to Christ is going to be met in this far deeper way than she could have now. So Jesus tells her, don't cling to me yet. I'm ascending to my Father. He tells her to go and give this same message to the disciples. Go tell the disciples. But it's interesting here how Jesus talks about his disciples. He gives Mary this message in the most wonderful way. He says, go to my brethren. Go to my brethren. He's talking about his disciples, but he says, go to my brothers. That's not a term he uses often for the disciples. In the, in, in the Gospels. There's something special about how he's saying this now. Something unique has happened. Romans 8.29 says that Christ rises from the dead and, and, and then he is the firstborn of many brothers. These disciples who abandoned him, denied him, he says, my brothers, their sin has not stripped them of their place in the family. His resurrection and his new status have not made him aloof from them. No, in fact, they've, they've brought them closer to him. Now they're brothers. They're co-heirs with Christ. He, he says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. He prayed just a few chapters before in John 17 that his disciples would be one with him. Now he's saying, this has been accomplished. He's finished this work. He's, he's won their salvation, finished their salvation. It's as though he's sending Mary with a certificate of adoption, saying, you're part of the family now. Go to my brothers. Tell them what's happened. Tell them I've risen from the dead and I'm ascending to my Father. Well, verse 18 tells us Mary does what the Lord commands. She goes, she tells them that she saw Jesus. She tells them what he said to her. What a glorious message. What would it have been like to be there in that upper room where the disciples were gathered, full of grief, full of confusion, wondering what's going on? Where is Christ's body? Did everything just fail? Did, the, did this kingdom project that Christ came announcing, did this just crash and burn? And then there's a knock on the door, and Mary's there. She's, He's alive. He's alive, just like he said he would be. He's, he's alive. Everything is everything we hoped in is coming true. He's going to ascend to his Father, to our Father. In that moment, as Mary comes bringing that gospel news, the disciples would have realized everything has changed. Think of those stories we hear of how people reacted when the news broke out that World War II was over. Instantaneous celebrations bursting out everywhere. People going mad with joy. That is nothing compared to this news that Mary brings the disciples. All the promises of the Old Testament, 
coming true. All those promises about the Messiah coming and crushing the serpent's head all the way since Genesis 3.15, all now coming true. The power of Satan finally broken. Guilt of sin finally dealt with forever. The once for all sacrifice for sin made forever. Death itself has been dealt its death blow. The kingdom of heaven did not fail. No, it's begun. It has been inaugurated. And now it's only a matter of time until it's consummated. Only a matter of time till Christ's disciples are raised from the dead in glory, just like He has been raised from the dead in glory. So everything, everything has changed. The deepest pain and grief has given way to the highest joy. And this isn't just a world-changing event. It's not just on a cosmic scale that this changes things. No, this is a life-changing event. This is an event that changes you and me, just like the disciples here. The disciples' lives would never be the same again after this, after this announcement. Every day from now on, they're going to live in the light of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. They live now with their eyes fixed on heaven where Christ is seated, risen and reigning in glory. Everything that happens to them happens in that category. The comprehensive title over them is Christ is alive and reigning. And no matter how much grief they still have to go through, how much suffering and humiliation they are going to endure, and they will, all these disciples, this is their unshakable hope and their joy. Through it all, Christ is alive. Brothers and sisters, that has not changed. Maybe you say, well, I didn't get to see him with my eyes like Mary did that resurrection morning. I didn't get to hear him say my name like Mary did that Easter. It just doesn't impact me the same way. Or maybe you say it's been 2,000 years since Jesus rose from the dead. That's just too distant to really impact my life now. If this had happened a couple years ago, like the disciples, sure, then it would really uh, impact my life. But it's just some distant, dusty history. Now, the griefs, the griefs of my life are present, pressing, real. But Christ's resurrection doesn't block out for me these griefs, doesn't overcome these griefs. This is 2,000-year-old good news. It does, just, just doesn't impact me in the same way. What does, Mary, what does Jesus tell Mary? Don't cling to me yet. She could cling to him once he had ascended. Then she could cling to him by faith and have him closer, sweeter, better by faith when he was absent but present by his spirit. Once his work was complete, he's telling her, just like he told his disciples, something better is coming. And this has not changed for us. The resurrection of Christ points us heavenward. Christ commands our gaze upward. He, he, he calls us to live in the light of his glorious resurrection always. And, and that news does not get stale or old or lose its impact. He still uh, comes by His Spirit and speaks our name and draws our attention, our gaze, to heaven where He is by His Spirit. He wants us to rejoice in Him. And He wants us to cling to Him now that He's been raised, that He's been ascended. And He wants us to realize that all the griefs that we go through now, we do as His brothers, co-heirs with Christ, that, that all the griefs we go through happen in the light of the joy of His glorious victory. 
all the things that happen to us are bathed in the love of God for us and the victory of His Son over sin, over death, and futility. We're not just, we're not just hoping in a promise of eternal life. We're not just hoping in, in, some, in some distant hope. No, we're hoping in a reality. Something that is already guaranteed, happened, begun in Christ. So brothers and sisters, cling to Him in the fog of grief. Go to Him and long for Him and demand His presence. It's the claim that He will honor. Look heavenward, brothers and sisters. And very soon we will see Him coming. Speak our names. He'll call us to Himself and we'll enter with Him the eternal Sabbath rest that is ours to come. Let's pray together.